Greetings, greetings, fellow Who-gazers, and welcome back to Doctor Who Literature, the new podcast taking you through the world of the Target novelizations in publication order. My name is Jason, and I'm your host on this journey, this very long journey. It's been a busy week here in Brooklyn, New York. We had an attempt at a mass shooting on a subway train in Sunset Park on Tuesday, and the suspect was quickly caught within about 24 hours. We are all okay here. Thanks very much to those of you who reached out to me, but we do not live in Sunset Park and do not take the subway train that was affected, fortunately. We've had a couple of deaths in the Doctor Who universe as well. We lost Jeremy Young, who played the very first antagonist in the very first Doctor Who serial, the three-part caveman serial attached to an unearthly child, He played Cal, the Neanderthal bad guy. He also returned for the final episode filmed as part of the Season 2 production block, Mission to the Unknown, where he played an unfortunate spaceship captain who meets a pointy end at the arms of a Varga plant on the planet Kemble in the run-up to Season 3's 12-part epic, The Daleks' Master Plan. We also lost Sonny Caldinez, who played Kemmel in Evil of the Daleks, as well as several Ice Warriors in all four classic series Ice Warriors serials from the eponymous Ice Warriors, which we covered on this program last week, as well as on all remaining serials, The Seeds of Death, The Curse of Peladon, and The Monster of Peladon. If you get a chance, track down the bonus materials on the loose cannon reconstruction of Evil of the Daleks, which features a very long interview with Sonny Caldinez, talking about his origins and professional career and stunt work. Very engaging and detailed and funny interview. Just indicative of the incredible good work that Loose Cannon was doing before the animations uh, became the primary source of getting your missing Doctor Who episodes, Loose Cannon was indispensable. Their material is mostly up on Daily Motion now, and the Sonny Caldinez interview really is a remarkable bit of work, and a real tribute to Sonny Caldinez, who we lost earlier this week. It's also a birthday for Peter Capaldi, the 12th Doctor. Making the rounds this week was an old newspaper interview with him in the mid-1970s, talking about his being able to meet John Pertwee and Tom Baker and Elizabeth Sladen being invited down to TV Center to watch the production of Doctor Who stories such as Planet of the Spiders and The Android Invasion. Last week, I talked a little bit about a Twitter user named Andrew Orton, at Andrew Orton, who posted what I thought were colorized set photos of the various layouts within Lime Grove D and TV Center. I was incorrect. Those are actually computer-generated images of the set layouts based upon the floor plans and other information that Mr. Orton dug up. They are so well done that I thought I was looking at vintage photographs touched up, but no, that is all computer-generated work, although it's almost impossible to tell from looking at them that they are not the real deal. Very impressive. Please check out his profile. The last bit of news that I want to talk about is this episode is going to be released on Sunday, April 17th, which is Easter for many of you. In other words, by the time you listen to this episode, you have probably already seen Legend of the Sea Devils, and I hope it is as good 
as the trailers and promotional materials make it look. I know I am very excited, and hopefully when we meet again next week, I will be as equally enthusiastic as I am excited now. A young man named Nathan Evans, who made a name for himself on TikTok a couple of years ago, recording sea shanties, has adapted one of his own songs, The Weller Man, for a Legend of the Sea Devils trailer, a 67 version with rewritten lyrics talking about the Sea Devils and Doctor Who. Now, my kid, my 11-year-old tween girl, is a big fan of Nathan Evans because, I guess, tween kids these days uh, love sea shanties. And uh, I have not been able to stop listening to Nathan Evans' uh, version of The Weller Man with Doctor Who lyrics. I've probably played it at least a dozen times in the last few days since it dropped. Uh, I was joking around that if the episode itself was just the opening credits, uh, that song played 48 times in a row, and then the closing credits, that would already be a top 10 episode for me. So that is something else very much to look forward to. And now, taking a step back in time, we are talking about May 1976 and the novelization of Revenge of the Cybermen. We're going to be joined after the break by a very good friend of mine, David Barsky, an American TV producer and longtime Doctor Who fan. And we're going to have quite a chat about Revenge of the Cybermen, the TV serial, the Terrence Sticks novelization. And, of course, as is usual for this podcast, many, many other topics of interest along the way. Let's get to it. There once was a ship, I'll tell you this. The name of the ship was the TARDIS. When trouble blew up, they didn't get down below you, bully boys blow. <laughs> Soon may the doctor come to bring us danger, adventure, then some. One day when the saving is done, she'll take her leave and go. So there is a secret we can't keep the coming back the devils of the deep And welcome back to Doctor Who Literature. I am joined now by my new guest David Barsky. David, welcome to the show. Thanks Jason. I really appreciate you having me on. This is really exciting. I'm uh, as you can see, I mean I guess the people who listening can't see but I like books. That is an impressive, impressive, impressive set of bookcases. See, when I first joined you on the video call, I just assumed that those were all DVD box sets because they're all of a uniform size and shape. And I said, yes. dude, that is an impressive DVD collection. And it turns out it was not DVDs at all. This is uh, – I had – when I moved in this house, uh, we, we knocked down a wall between two rooms, and I, I always wanted to have a library. And I, and I got a crazy library. This is sort of my, my – my, my, office end and what i want to do here is have all my paperback literature these are all science fiction literature uh books and uh i, I wanted to emulate the you know the feel when i go into a used bookstore I, I love you know every every city i've ever been to I, I one of the first things i do is seek out the used bookstores and i i look for paperbacks that i haven't found or you know or, or otherwise and uh yeah and i'm also proud to say i've probably read about 80 percent of the ones you you can see um that's a pretty good clearance rate. My clearance rate is about 45% right now on my bookcase. Well, you can't see the other end of the room where I have uh, my collection of uh, science fiction, fantasy, and horror film and television reference books. I have 2,600 volumes now. Uh, I have one cabinet that's just Doctor Who. It's actually spilling onto the next cabinet. Uh, 
I, you know, I obviously my 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 rate is not even close to ten percent in those, but they're reference books for the most part. So that's okay. You dip in and out after you watch a film or two or an episode of you know Star Trek or whatever. Now, before we started recording, we were comparing notes about the DVDs, and you told me that you did something similar to what I've been doing. So I've been doing my pilgrimage, which I started towards the beginning of the pandemic, watching either two episodes of the classic series or one episode of the new series a night. So in the last 18 months, I have gone from Unearthly Child in 1963, and I am now in the middle of season four of the Sarah Jane Adventures, leading up to A Christmas Carol. And then series six, which is Matt Smith's second season on the air. That's taken me 18 months, 45 minutes to an hour of Doctor Who every single night. And it is a burnout pace. You did something, my friend, that makes me look like a dilettante. What did you do? Oh, first of all, I disagree with you. Uh, that's commitment. Every night, I, I first of all, I didn't do every night, and I, and I couldn't. But uh, you know, uh, what I did uh, uh, the last day of it ended in the last day of uh, December 2020 uh, was the end of an eight-year run of watching all of the classic DVD D, uh, serials, uh, and that is watching all three versions that were on the DVDs. That is just watching the serials by themselves, episode to episode. Now, maybe I'd watch a whole one, you know, if it's a four-parter in one sitting. Uh, sometimes I'd break them up. But then I'd watch the same thing, but with the production notes, you know, the subtitles, production notes. And then I'd watch it with the commentary, the audio commentary. So I did that for every single DVD in the range. And, of course, you know, you, you, you go through and there's things like, uh, uh, what is it, uh, uh, Spearhead from Space, where there's two versions on that D- the special DVD, so I had to watch it six times. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but you know, I, actually, I, that's probably not true. I, I can't remember some years since I did Spearhead, but I, I, I don't think the production notes change very much. But uh, I did watch the two different versions straight without the you know the commentary or the. So it was at least four times I watched that. I don't know if you're collecting the Blu-ray box sets, but for the Blu-ray, they have rewritten wholesale a lot of the text commentaries. Paul Schoons, who does a lot of the production notes, uh, was following me for the classic series portion of my pilgrimage, and he was pointing out which production notes were his, what got rewritten, because I love the production notes, and I was always screenshotting the funniest ones for the Twitter version of my pilgrimage. So you could theoretically, for example, for Black Orchid, you could watch... The vanilla story, then you could watch the very negative Peter Davison audio commentary, then you could watch the original production notes on the regular uh, DVD, and then the new, much more involved production notes on the season 19 Blu-ray. Well, I haven't done the pilgrimage yet, and I was going to start it in the 60th anniversary thereabouts, at least a year in in 2020. Uh, 2023 going from another earthly child episode by episode, I, you know, maybe watching one or two a night, maybe splitting it up. It's just when I have the time to do it. And I, I am collecting the Blu-rays as they come out. So I'll probably have to endeavor. I was just going to watch them straight without the production notes or anything like that, but I'm going to have to, I did, someone convinced me to, to to purchase those Blu-rays because there were some more, you know, uh, value added material, commentaries and things like that i hear are pretty good uh so i'd I'd love to see them they've been going back and while i have access to tom baker they are getting him to record commentaries for a lot of the stories that he didn't record during the original run so 
I just got my season 17. It's sitting shrink wrapped uh, next to my computer over there, which you can't see my work computer. And he went back and he did an audio commentary for city of death. And I cannot wait to hear that. I just need to clear the time because the rest of my pilgrimage is in the way. Yeah. Some of those uh, earlier DVD range commentaries that he did are just outstanding. You know, he did one with Mary Tam. I believe it might've been androids and Tara. They got a little, edgy if you will i just loved it he's just i mean he could get away with it as an old man i guess but maybe not nowadays but uh i i can't wait to go back in here he's just he's just brilliant to listen to one of the most fun audio commentaries was russell t davies coming in with katie manning and doing a commentary just for episode six of the green death because he obviously brought Katie back into the Sarah Jane adventures and the green death is almost like the template for the RTD era of doctor who. Cause you have the human emotions and the soap opera superimposed over this wacky, crazy, you know, killer maggots plot. Yeah. And, and he is, he's brilliant to listen to. And his, his, his ideas are so outlandish. I really, I mean, obviously, you know, as soon as I heard the show was coming back and I didn't know much about him, but man, that first season with Eccleston is just so amazing. And I, I love it so much. I, I was a little dismayed and, you know, being a grumpy old Dr. Who fan at the time, you know, I was, uh, I guess I was 36 when I first saw it. Cause I don't think it got to the States on sci-fi until a year after it was done. I mean, I think before I even saw it, I already heard Eccleston's left apart, but, um, it, I, I was a little grumpy about not leaving the planet, you know, uh, but I, I understand why they did it. But what he did with the series and how he really added that emotion worked for me. I mean, he had to update it, obviously. And uh, man, it was it was brilliant. Agreed, agreed. I sort of have waning interest in the new series at times over the years, and it doesn't quite mean as much to me as the classic series did. Cause I started the classic series when I was 11 and the new series dropped when I was 31 going on 32. Nothing is ever going to replace in your heart what you loved at 11 years old. So the classic series is still it for me. And I watched the new series as every episode airs and I've seen it multiple times and I've written about it and I've podcasted about it. But the classic series is, you know, a much bigger part of my soul and always will be. Yeah, listen, I, 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 I always feel that I, I felt the same. I feel the same way, a hundred percent. And you know, I always with the new series, I'm, I, I, I feel that yes, it's, you know, there's some linkage there with references and all that kind of stuff and old monsters and there's a lot of fan wank, you know, especially in the Moffat era. And I, look, God knows, I love to be wanked, so I, I'll, I'll watch it just because I. I love that kind of stuff, you know, with, with, with the references to the old shows that I love. But I sometimes pejoratively ask if someone's talking about an episode or making me guess what an episode was, is I'll say, is it new who or true who? <laughs> uh, so it's, 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 it's Doctor Who adjacent, the new series for me. I, I know that's probably blasphemy for a lot of people. And I know I have a lot of good friends who didn't get into the show until the new series came along. And, you know, uh, I'll still appreciate it, but I won't. I won't rewatch the heck out of it like I will, you know, a, a reconstruction of, of of a missing season six. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I have. I have seen the Wheel in Space as a blurry telesnap recon more than I've seen most of the Moffat era. Oh yes, hands down. It's like Wheel in Space was one of the first ones I ever got. You know, I remember getting the VHSs back in the nineties. I got uh, Seeds of Death, Wheel in Space, and I think the Moon Base was the third one I got. It was pretty cool, man. Yeah, I remember when I first discovered those 
early years and Dalek slash Cyberman years VHSs in Suncoast video when I was a sophomore in college. I dropped $80 on my credit card to get all four of those, the Hartnell and Trout in early years in one shot. I came home from the Baltimore Gallery Mall with a thick stack of VHS tapes, put them on the one dorm VHS player that I had access to and watched them all in a weekend. That's awesome. That is great. Yeah, you got you got into it a little bit after I did, um, from what I've been hearing and some things that you say. But uh, you know, uh, man, I've been I've been watching for I've been watching since 1980, I believe. Sarah Jane's 1980, in fact. Um, so uh, yeah, it's it's uh, been quite a journey. And back then, we just had you know the first you know what was it first four seasons or so of Tom Baker that just ran on a cycle. Uh, and were you watching on PBS or was this back when it was still on commercial TV? This was, this was PBS. Uh, and you know, they, you know, they had little intros done and, and, and actually, um, they, they, uh, WGBH in Boston where I wore it actually had, they weren't exactly commercials, but they had breaks, like two breaks just with little like elevator music showing the, the upcoming schedule for the, for the station for some reason. And this voiceover come on and said, you know, we're having commercial breaks because Dr. Who is too costly to alter. I remember never forget, that, never forget that phrase. Like what the heck does that even mean? Too costly to alter. And I guess that means they just needed to stretch out the block for some reason to, uh, to, to make it fill the time slot or, or you know, they, they had those Howard DeSilva, you know, the Howard DeSilva intros, they had the recaps from the previous episode. Maybe that was part of it. Well, that's what they meant. I, I don't get it, you know, but they weren't even commercials. They weren't selling time, of course, because it was PBS, but they had these breaks that lasted maybe 30 seconds. And I never, I even wrote them once I became an adult I wrote the, the the station to tell me so they could tell me what the hell that meant, and they they had no idea. It was such ancient history by that time; nobody knew what I was talking about. See, I got into the show in 1984 on my Long Island PBS station, and we they just aired the episodes, you know, 25 minutes a night from seven to seven twenty-five, right after this old house. So when I heard the This Old House with Bob Vila closing music, my adrenaline starts to surge because I know that Doctor Who's about 45 seconds away. They were showing the Lionheart stuff with the distinctive Lionheart fanfare at the very end of the episode yep. after the Starfield mm-hmm. explodes. So I didn't see – but then when they got – so about five years after I started watching, they got a new syndication package on PBS, and that's when they started showing the Howard De Silva's. And of course, oh. he, of course, you know, is the famous Benjamin Franklin from uh, the Broadway yes. show and from the Franklin Museum in Philadelphia. So I recognized him. Like, what is Howard De Silva doing <laughs> talking about pyramids of Mars? Or Wait, so Mars? you knew who he was before that? That's funny. That's that was my first uh, encounter with Howard. So but then, like later, I discovered my parents had the soundtrack to 1776, and I'm like, oh, and he actually sings on that, as I recall. I can't remember. But I've seen that movie a couple of times. Actually, my wife has a friend who's actually in the movie. Uh, oh, wow. Briefly. Yeah. And um, then years who, later, I saw him in The Lost Weekend playing Ray Milan's brother. So that means yeah. that Ray Milan now has a Kevin Bacon number next to Gabriel Wolf. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Not at all. So you were watching the show in New England, I think you said, right? Yeah, suburban Boston. I live in a town about uh, 17 miles southwest of the city. Yeah, we had so we had obviously the PBS pledge breaks three or four times a year. And the Mm -hmm. guy who hosted the pledge breaks in the mid 80s on my PBS station, 
by coincidence, had grown up in the same apartment building as my mother in Brooklyn in the 1940s and 50s. So the kicker is the 1950 census just got released, and I found my mom. It's her first census, the 1950, and on the same sheet of paper, the same ledger page as my mother, is the guy who did the PBS pledge breaks for Doctor Who in the 80s, who is now a law professor out on Long Island. It's a pretty <laughs> wild bit of uh, genealogy right there. Uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, it's funny. My mother grew up uh, across the street from Whitey Bulger. So I don't know. <laughs> that's, that's, yeah, she, she her bedroom window literally looked, looked into his bedroom window. Uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I guess uh, moms uh, know people, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Whitey Bulger is a little more infamous than the guy who did uh, pledge breaks in 1986 wearing a Tom Baker scarf, but they're equally <laughs> impressive in their own way. <laughs> yes. So you are in uh, the L.A. area now. What brings you out to uh, TV and movie land? Uh, well, uh, I, uh, I came out to visit my girlfriend in 1992 for two weeks, and I never left. Um, you know, that's, you know, the short story. But uh, I, was, I was actually uh, going to school at uh, Syracuse University, and I was studying television, radio, and film management. I also had another major, which... Uh, I did not put to use. It was sort of, it's called policy studies, sort of an interactive political science, if you will, how to really understand, you know, policy and how to better inter, uh, enact certain policy based on, you know, surveys and things like that. But anyways, uh, uh, yeah, I came out here because my girlfriend's father was a, a director and producer. He did a lot of a lot of cool stuff. Um, he, he was based in New York primarily, but he, he did, you know, he, 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 they moved out here after a time. Uh, he, he produced the first two seasons of Miami Vice. And so he, you know, he, he uh, produced a, a couple of Woody Allen movies uh, and a few other things. So he, uh, he, he knew a lot of people and he convinced me. Uh, I wanted to, I honestly, I wanted to get in, into the sci-fi channel. I wanted to be a program director for the sci-fi channel that had just started six months before I graduated college. Wow. Yeah. Actually, it was, it was actually, I don't know if it was six months. It was probably, no, it was only, it was probably a little bit more. Uh, it is, it, it was probably about eight months because, uh, for my, for my senior year, you know, my, my girlfriend's parents were divorced and she lived in suburban New Jersey. And, uh, uh, I, I wanted to work at the sci-fi channel. I knew that cause I was such a sci-fi nerd. And so um, it, my girlfriend's uncle actually worked in the city at the, at, I guess it's Channel 5, the Fox affiliate you guys have. Uh, and is it, I think so. And, and yeah, it, was, it, was not, it was not a Fox affiliate. It was Metro Media back in the 70s and 80s, but all the reruns worth watching, like Batman, uh, Brady mm -hmm. Bunch, were all on Channel 5. Okay. And, you know, well, anyways, I was, you know, for Christmas break, I was out in, in, in New Jersey and he, drove into work one day and I decided to go with him. And, uh, at the time, you know, sci-fi was owned by USA network and I just went to Avenue of the Americas and walked in and asked for an interview. And, uh, they called up to the program director at the time who actually was from the Boston area. It was at, uh, well, uh, I think it was channel five in Boston, believe it or not. And, uh, he, 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 he let me talk to him on the phone and he said, so you came in here, without an appointment, expecting to get an interview. And I said, well, not really, but I knew if I had called ahead of time, you'd definitely say no. He goes, you're right. I'll give you 10 minutes. Wow. And yeah, 
So, you know, I go to his office up on the, you know, 200th and 11th floor or whatever it was. And, and, uh, you know, we talked for 10 minutes, but he, the first thing he says, look, man, I'll tell you right now, I don't have a job for you. We're just starting out. We're trying to figure out, you know, where we're going with this thing. And, uh, you know, we're, we're a very small arm of USA, but, uh, you know, uh, I'll, I'll give you some advice. And, you know, he said, you know, work your ass off and do what you can do, you know, and then, when I came out to visit my girlfriend here after graduation, her dad basically said, well, look, I know people out here, you know, they believe that you should be out here if you want to work in sci-fi because they were doing a lot of their, their made for TV movies out here, not their program. The programming offices were definitely in, in New York at the time. But anyways, I just called my mother and said, Hey, Ma, send my stuff out. And she did. And I, I've been here since. Wow. And you have been in the industry then for about 30 years. Got any stuff you want to plug? Well, <laughs> I don't know about plug, you know, you know, it's, it's, it's I'm, I'm basically at this time, uh, in this time of my career, uh, in the last maybe 15 years, I've been a showrunner for hire for, uh, what I call nonfiction, not reality, but nonfiction programming reality, I, you know, is, I, I use it pejoratively as well. I, I just think it's, you know, some of that, you know, all that BS fighting on TV, you know, families fighting. Although I've been a, a part of that. I did a show called American Chopper back in the day. I did the second season of that back in 03. And, and, uh, but that was all real <laughs> since then, uh, you know, all, all those guys, those guys fighting, you know, they were, they were, they were great in their way, but you know, they pretty much, you know, cast the mold of how those shows go. And it just has unraveled since. So I don't, I don't really like what is commonly for his reality TV. I do nonfiction television. I guess, you know, what I'm most known for anyway is a show that I did for seven years on Discovery called Dirty Jobs. Um, and, you know, that was from uh, 05 to uh, 2012. And, uh, but I've been doing a lot of other different shows since and, you know, show running those shows. And uh, actually last three years I've been working for, ironically enough, USA Network. Uh, I, you know, uh, the, I uh, did two seasons uh, of uh, Straight Up Steve Austin with the uh, famous W, most famous WWE wrestler of all time, uh, Stone Cold Steve Austin, and it was sort of a, I don't know if you know uh, uh, Jerry Seinfeld's, uh, was it uh, Comedians in Cars Getting Coffee? I think it's called. As a Jewish New Yorker, I am slightly familiar with the works of Jerry Seinfeld. Yes, I'm sure. Yeah, well, he's got a great show. It's very popular. And, well, the, the thing we do with Steve Austin is basically like comedians in cars, except for wearing tanks rolling over the cars with guests. You know, it's just like one guest per episode. And uh, and that's something we actually did. And, uh, <laughs> that was a crazy idea. I had. It was on our very first episode that we shot. We just got a tank and started rolling over cars. I thought it would be really cool. And you've come full circle then to USA after the launch of Sci-Fi Channel thirty odd years ago. Yeah, now you know they've sort of they've they've, they've had a sort of regime change at USA uh, early last year, uh, so they 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 canceled Steve's show unfortunately. Uh, but I've been doing some development work on two different shows uh, in the meantime, and I just finished uh, the second one uh, last week, and it was perfect timing to get on your podcast too. Now I have some time to talk. I love it. So talking about sci-fi, they actually had the contract of the first four seasons of Tom Baker at the very beginning, which we didn't get that on our cable vision package out on Long Island. So I didn't get sci-fi channel until I went to college, at which point they were already past airing the Tom Baker stuff. But you would have seen Revenge of the Cybermen with commercials on sci-fi channel back in the day. And that's the story that you signed up to talk about when I pitched this podcast to you. I'll make a confession to you because I've known you a long time and I feel like I can trust you. 
I think Revenge of the Cybermen is a great Cyberman story. And for me, the default Cyberman voice, now there have been a lot of great cyber voices over the years. For me, the default is Christopher Robbie as the cyber leader in this story. This is what gets this is what gets me going. When I see this story, these are my Cybermen. Well, 100% true, Jason. I am so happy you said. I'm literally tingling right now. I'm not kidding you. Because, uh, I mean, look, at this, let's face it, this serial is derided by a lot of people for a number of reasons. But I do agree the look of the Cybermen and the sound of the Cybermen. I think the earlier Cybermen, as much as I love, you know, Tomb and, you know, other Cybermen stories from, you know, say the Troughton era, they, the voice is a little too electronic. You know, it's it, 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 they did what they could, but it's a too it's too otherworldly. Let's not even talk about the new series Cybermen. I, I don't think they're Cybermen at all. Uh, they're more of just mechanical drones. And and one of the reasons, of course, why this serial is so derived is, is Robbie's performance. It's some they they say it's a little too emotional, but in my head canon, I mean, look, I mean, it's like yes, they're, they, they 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 this the whole you know the whole thing about the Cybermen is they are trying to get rid of their emotions they're they are they have no feelings but there is humanity initially in the creatures that are in those 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 outfits and i i like to say look the, the, sometimes things go wrong you know uh you know things fail and especially when these cybermen in revenge are supposedly the last of their kind are pretty damn close to the last of their kind you know Programming isn't what it used to be, and you can't update, if you will. Uh, and and some of that emotion might be shining through again. And now, of course, that's kind of silly headcanon. But my other reason why I like the performance is mechanical men that are sort of drones like what you have in Cybermen and the New Who uh, aren't as scary to me. I mean, what's more frightening than something that can reason and and, and, and plan and, and change plans uh, and thwart you if you're trying to say you're the doctor and, and trying to outwit them. I mean, if they have emotion, they, they can think in different ways. If they have a bit of humanity, I mean, that's what makes us human in a lot of ways. I mean, that's a cliche, but it, it fits the bill here, I think. I think it's really scary because he does get angry, uh, Christopher Robbie, cyber leader, especially in the fourth episode. And he, he starts showing that uh, emotion and I think that is terrifying. And I'll piggyback on what you're saying, because the Cybermen have the strength of ten men. These are mm-hmm. imposing, fierce creatures. Giving them buzzy voices or mellifluous Charles Nelson Riley voices doesn't work. Hey, don't knock Charles. <laughs> I won't knock him, but he's some of those... Tenth Planet voices go up and down like Charles Nelson Riley, and it's not yeah. what you consider frightening. Uh, although Lidsville is one of my favorite series growing up, so much respect to Charles Nelson Riley as the evil wizard hoodoo. Yes, yes, of course. But I Christopher was a Robbie is, oh, sorry, Christopher Robbie is imposing. He's got a deep voice. He's got the hands on the hips. Mm-hmm. He is what you want a big, frightening, strongest ten-man robot to be, right? Yes, yes, and even you know that first shot, you know when they they first get on the beacon walking through that door and how he has to duck down it's just it you're like oh god this is i mean if 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 i were you know the commander with even i had that gun sitting standing next to lester who also has a gun i'd I'd be crapping my pants i mean those those things look scary 
and the black painted helmet to denote yeah. that he's the cyber leader is also kind of awesome. Yeah, no, it is. It really is. And I, you know, I love, I, I also love the design where the design choice where they decided to have them shoot out of their heads. I mean, I haven't seen anything like that. It's kind of, it's kind of crazy. You wonder how that really works, how, you know, you know, cartridges get loaded and go through, you know, whatever brain they might have in there. But so what? It's, it's pretty cool. And we were talking about the production notes, the text commentary on the DVDs earlier. For my money, the text commentary for Revenge of the Cybermen is the funniest one the range ever put out. It does poke fun of a lot of Voris's idioms. I mean, you're not going to have cringing mice and cowering worms on a barren asteroid, so those idioms don't work. And they also have fun with the fact that the cyber leader has a rakish pose standing with his hands on his hips, cocking his head to the side. But for me, they're not laughing at the story. They're laughing with the story because I think it is a witty script. I think David Collins is a great villain as Voris. And of course, we've already talked about how awesome is Christopher Robbie. So this is comfort who for me, just watching Revenge of the Cybermen over and over again. And I'll tell you, when it first aired on my PBS in early 85, when I first saw it, they were doing one episode a night, right? So, you know, part one on a Tuesday, etc. That overlap with the holiday where I was packed off to my grandmother's apartment in Brooklyn, the same building where my mom grew up that I just saw in the 1950 census data and wasn't able to watch on her TV. So I set the VCR timer back home on Long Island. And of course, for whatever reason, it didn't record episode four. So I got home, watched episode two, watched episode three. Episode four was nothing. So it took me two and a half more years to finally see the fourth episode, at which point I was already reading Shakespeare in high school, and I was able to realize the doctor was quoting <laughs> Macbeth over the dust to the gold dust strewn body of the dead Cyberman. Yes. So I aged right into that. Out, out, brief. Well, come on, doctor. Yeah, he couldn't even be poetic in, uh, you know, time of crisis. Sarah had to interrupt him, but you know, uh, it's, it, you know, it, it, full disclosure. I, I don't know if I ever told you this, but Revenge of the Cybermen was the first serial, full serial of Doctor Who I have ever seen. Oh wow! Uh, yeah, so it obviously has a special place in my heart. Um, you know, I it was funny. I'll, I'll never forget how I first learned of Doctor Who. I was it was before the morning bell outside of my my school. At uh, I was in the fourth grade. And I was talking to my friend. Brendan Carroll uh, about God knows what I have no idea, but our other friend uh, Casey Connell comes running up straight off the bus and says, "Hey, did you guys see the blob on Doctor Who last night?" And I'm like, "I, you know, a blob. I, I like blobs, but what is this Doctor Who you speak of?" I, I honestly I didn't say that aloud because I didn't want to be one of the uncool kids. Later, of course, in life, I found out watching Doctor Who you weren't one of the cool kids, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but, but I, I, it was a little, about a week until I finally figured out what Doctor Who was and what channel it was on. And the first episode I caught, I caught the full, uh, episode of Genesis, the Daleks part six. And so, and boy, was I confused. Who knows what was going on there, but I saw that. And then I tuned in the next day and the next, you know, subsequent you know, four nights, you know, cause it was actually you know, again, a strip Monday through Friday. Uh, in Boston, and I, I saw Revenge of the Cybermen, and I was hooked. And I don't know, I don't know when the first episode I actually missed was from there. I probably saw Terror of the Zygons right on, and you know, as I said, we had you know, um, uh, uh, what do you, it was Robot through Invasion of Time, which was cycled over for the first 
probably two and a half years of me watching Doctor Who. That's all I saw was the, was those seasons. And, and But it took me forever to figure out what this blob he was talking about because there was no blob. And I, 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 I kind of narrowed it down. It was, pro, it was either, you know, the, the embryonic Daleks that, that were growing or it could have been Noah on Nerva Beacon on Arkham Space, which is probably what it was. That's more blobby. See, the cliffhanger to part five of Genesis of the Daleks is the blob climbing up the doctor's neck, trying to strangle him. So if that was yeah. what you heard about in the morning and came home and watched Genesis part six of that night, he must have been talking about that particular cliffhanger. But it was at least, I think it was at least a week before I figured out where to find uh, Doctor Who. So I don't think it was Genesis. And so we're talking the sure. we're in an arc in space then. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it was Noah's transformation into a we're in when he was, you know, a larva's larva we're in. That's probably you're, where it was. You're coming in at a great time. Cause if you look at the year 2014 DWM survey, you know, they rank every Doctor Who story mm-hmm. from one to 241 of the top 25 Eight of them are Hinchcliffe stories. Now, Hinchcliffe produced 16 stories in three seasons. Mm-hmm. Literally half of his output are top 25 stories. You're never going to find a run of Doctor Who that excellent again, even if the show runs another 59 years. Yep, you're absolutely right. I mean, sure, a lot of it was, you know, pastiche, you know, of particularly Hammer films and and and, and, and the like, but it those, those are great stories. I mean... And classic stories, you know, pastiche of Frankenstein, pastiche of, you know, Phantom of the Opera, um, the, uh, Sherlock Holmes elements, you know. So, yeah, those things are forever, though, all of that stuff. And, and they played on that, and it just really worked well for that era of Doctor Who. They, they did a great job. So let's talk about the books then. I've talked quite a bit on this podcast on how I came to discover the books and I started collecting the books pretty contemporaneous to the TV broadcast. I started the books maybe about six weeks after I would have first seen that little snippet of Time Flight Part 1. Yes, I too came in with a story that is somewhat derided in fandom. Mm-hmm. But the books became my constant companions as a geeky loser middle school, high school, junior high school student, I should say. So I didn't go anywhere without at least two Doctor Who novelizations in my backpack, we're sitting at a restaurant in Manhattan for dinner. I'm reading a novelization before the, before the food is served. We're on the train. I'm reading a novelization. We're in the backseat of the car, driving to visit relatives in Bayside or, or, or Maplewood, New Jersey. I've got a novelization on my lap. And I have Revenge of the Cybermen in the book right ah. here. And looking at it gives me that warm, glowing, warming glow. How did you get into the books? I do not recall how I first discovered them, but I did discover the, the, the 10 Pinnacle books, the printings of Pinnacle here in the States before I even heard of Target. Um, this was very early on. It was probably 81, 82. And I know that I found them probably in the Walden books in, in the local mall. And uh, I found most of them. I remember the very first one I bought and read was The Android Invasion. And I love that story too. And I know a lot of people don't, but I don't care. I love that story. It's so much fun. Uh, and I'd seen all the Doctor Who, you know, as you know, the, 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 this, uh, the, the first three in that run are the third Doctor stories. And, and the last seven are, are Tom Baker era Doctor Who stories. And, you know, I hadn't seen any of the Pertwee uh, yet, but I read those books 
somewhere in there. And uh, I was really confused about a lot of things, the way they described the doctor. I had no idea that other incarnations even existed. I, I only knew the fourth doctor. Right. So I'm reading this stuff and I have, I have no idea. I do remember the one I could never find, no matter what bookstore I went to, was Doctor Who and Loch Ness Monster. That, and I, in fact, I actually uh, sent away from it, uh, sent away an order for it from an ad from Famous Monsters magazine. They, oh, wow. they, they had, yeah, they had like, it's just, you can get these. I don't know what, I, I don't know if it was through Famous Monsters or through some independent uh, distribution company, but I couldn't find it. So I, last resort, sent away for it. And then like a month, six weeks later, I get a letter back saying uh, that that title is no longer available. Oh, <laughs> man. Like, I was like, oh, damn it. But somehow I originally, I, I initially, uh, I, excuse me, I eventually found it. Uh, and I read it, of course, and it was wonderful because that's that's probably my second favorite story of all time. Actually, I love uh, *Terror of the Zygons*. That is one of the eight Hinchcliffe that is in the top twenty-five on the DWM poll. Oh. So I think the rest of oh. fandom is on the same page as you. But then, you know, I, I discovered one day my grandmother came home. Uh, I came home. Well, I didn't live with her, but she came to visit, and uh, she brought me uh, uh, four books, and two of them were Doctor Who books. Uh, of serials I've never heard of. Uh, they were Carnival of Monsters and The Green Death. Ooh. And yeah, and it was a Target imprint. And um, I'm like, what the heck? And I'm looking at the, the illustrations and I'm like, this kind of looks like Tom Baker. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I was so confused. I was probably maybe 11, 12. And she got them in Boston and they were imports actually. They hadn't officially been distributed in the uh, in, 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 in United States yet. She got them somewhere in downtown Boston and she said, Oh my God, there had to have been hundreds of them. I'm like, Oh my God, I, what is this? I, you know, I didn't even know anything still, nothing past the fourth doctor. And um, I'm like, what the heck? And then eventually I, she brought me another one. It was, it was the three doctors. And if I was confused at first, you had no idea what I was trying. I'm like, I, I remember vividly staring at this book and saying, well, the third guy in this photo, because you're familiar with the cover of that book, right? It's the face of the first three doctors. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. The, the third guy to the right, he kind of looks like Tom Baker. He's got curly hair, but it's too white. I'm like, what is going on here? I had no freaking idea. I was so confused. Uh, but then eventually, uh, you know, I, 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 uh, Peter Haining's uh, celebration came out, and then I figured it all out. Oh, you know, it might not even have been that. It might have been there was an issue, of a back issue of Famous Monsters, uh, issue 155, that had Doctor Who on the cover. It was a, it was a collage of the, the diamond logo with all the different monsters, and it listed every single Doctor Who serial in the time in the, pa- in the magazine on the pages inside. And then I, I started getting an idea of what was going on. But still, I had no clue uh, for a long time. And there it is. I found the cover to Famous Monsters 155 on eBay. Yes. Uh, came out in '79. Oh, they got they got Target artwork. They got um that yes. picture, the illustration of Sorensen from the Planet of Evil cover is looming over Tom Baker's left shoulder. Yep. And yeah, so uh, that's when I started learning uh, more about the, the the Doctors prior to the fourth. You know, it's funny. I was even a little confused. You know. As as you, you might remember the, the, I don't know if the I have a, a pinnacle book here, but it's a later printing of the, the Revenge of the Cybermen, um, and I'm going to have to tell you why this is the only copy. See, it doesn't have it in here, um, but some of the earlier the earlier printings 
of the Pinnacle books would say, this is an adventure of the fourth incarnation of Doctor Who. And to add, right. there was actually a misprint in uh, Invasion of the, well, the Dinosaur Invasion. It said it was the fourth Doctor, not the third. That's doctor. right. That's right. Yeah. Anyways, I, I, I well, look, I, 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 and, and so I bought those first, but then when they showed up, uh, they actually got officially distributed in U.S. The targets got distributed. I, they started popping up like crazy. Uh, and I started buying the heck of them like six at a time. I remember I went to a trip uh, to see Boston College in the Cotton Bowl in Dallas with my dad. And we wandered into, you know, a bookstore and I bought six Doctor Who's down there in Dallas. I remember Pyramids of Mars and Planet of the Spiders were, were, were two of them. I can't remember the other titles. Maybe Planet of the Evil is also in there. But I started picking them up. But I, I got to tell you something. I did notice um, the ones that my grandmother gave me were slightly larger than the the targets that I was buying because huh. I guess the books there were early printers of the printings of the books and they were UK editions not the, the so I'm like it really I had them on my desk at when I was a kid at home and I had them lined up against the wall and it just bothered me that I had these two or three ones that are a little too large for the for the row so I had to rebuy those when they when I finally found them in the local bookstore as you know as U.S. distribution copies, not the the imports. So I initially got rid of my the ones my grandmother gave me. I'll tell you, my copy of Underworld is about a good quarter of an inch taller than every other book on the shelf when you line them up in story order. So I wonder if that was the same uh, misprinting. Well, it's. I don't think it was a misprint. I just think that the 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 UK editions were larger. Not only were they taller, but they also stuck out further. So, but you're right. I, me- I remember the the, the 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 tops were not exactly even throughout the run. But yeah, the you know, pinnacles are shorter. To the pinnacles, there's a definite dip when you have the pinnacles in between two targets. Right. Well, the pinnacles were not in that run. I only put the targets in there, and yeah. I kept the pinnacles on a different shelf because they were sacred. Um, but I, but, you know, as the eighties came along and, you know, we started getting, you know, the fifth doctor stories, the, 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 the sixth doctor, the first, the second, third, and then, uh, eventually, you know, we started getting, uh, the, the target novels started coming out. They started finishing them up with a lot of them, as you know, with the, with the original authors of the serials, I bought them as soon as they came out. I bought every single thing as I had every single one, uh, up until, you know, uh, until they basically finished, really. I mean, I, I had Wheel in Space, of course, which I guess now is really hard to find. Uh, and I didn't know that time, but I got to tell you, I, I was really, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a hopeless creationist. And I never thought after a long time, it was over a decade or so, uh, there were, you know, the last ones I bought actually were the, uh, the Doc's Master Plan novels, the John Peel. Uh, and 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 I I was like, well, Sayward's never going to write his stuff. We're never going to get Douglas Adam stuff. So I was like, you know what? They're not complete. I'm getting rid of my Target novels. Oh, oh I can literally and, feel that pain cutting through my I, heart like a hot knife through butter. I got to tell you, I, I I do not have many regrets in life, but that is one of them. That is certainly one of them. I mean, I brought these things to college with me every single time. And I, I know, it's, it's talking about a freaking nerdy thing to do. You know, I, I still had my my share of uh, fun, but uh, you know, I I I, I but I, I I had to bring those novels with me, even though I never really read them. You know, and I I didn't want to haul them back to Boston with me in between uh, over the summers. You know, in between years, so I, I had a friend who had a house and. 
he he let him keep me in, keep my, my box of target novels in his basement and i remember he put them under a window in the basement Uh-oh. there was a couple of nights at home i was like oh my god what if it rains they got my my novels are going to get soaked i literally i was i had stomach pains worrying about my damn target novels but eventually you know like i said being the hopeless completionist that i was in around 2000 yeah it was about 2000 i uh I, I had I was collecting too much stuff. I had like every issue of Starlog, every issue of Fangoria, every issue of Santa Fantastique, a number of magazines. I was just like, I just got to stop. <laughs> and one of the things that went, as I said, was uh, uh, my uh, my Doctor Who Target novel collection, which is again a shame. <laughs> well, I, I appreciate you reacquiring Avenger the Cybermen for this episode. Yeah. So well, yeah, I, I had to. You're reading the book now. You know, you and I are of a similar age. We are gentlemen uh, circling the mid-century mark. What's it like going back and rereading Revenge of the Cybermen uh, when you first read it when you would have been, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old? What's the experience like reading this well-written kid's book as a approaching middle-aged man? Well, I, I got to tell you, I, I, I remember reading it for the first time and being confused by a little things that didn't match what I was so familiar with on screen. Um, and I was less confused this time because I now understand why things are adapted. They, you know, when they're put on paper versus on screen. Uh, so, you know, th- there was a, there was a lot less confusion, of course, if, if any at all, but I, I gotta tell you, I think this is a complete failure of a novel. I think this, I think that the things that, not only what Dick subtracts, but what he adds, especially in terms of the Doctor's character, are, are, just don't work. And they contradict other things that he actually has in the novel. And I, I was quite surprised by it. And, you know, one of the things I missed the most, and I get it, but I, I, I missed Voga. I, I mean, the, the setting, the Wookiee, holes, the Wookiee Hole locations that we use are so cool. I mean, what more could you want as a kid in a, in, in a show? It's like you got these imposing Cybermen. You got spaceships. You got caves everywhere that are so crazy and mysterious. But I, I remember, you know, as re- reading this novel, I'm like, you know, there seems to be a le- lot less in the caves. And, and what he basically did was – uh, you know, he, Dick's sort of eliminated a lot of the action, like some of the gunfight and, uh, you know, Sarah, for instance, well, it wasn't in the original script. Of course he was going off the original scripts for this particular series, not the tapes, but, you know, Sarah going on the little dinghy to get back to the transmat station, you know, that's not in there. So I really missed a lot of that stuff. Cause that, that, that really sparks the imagination and made the whole show so cool for me. The whole story was really cool, the way they used those, the, the, that setting. Underground rapids are never not cool on television. Yes, of course. I don't know how rapid they really were, but yeah. So this book is published in May 76. It's about a year after the TV story airs. That means it was probably written about six months after Revenge airs. I don't know if Terrence would have had videotape access or if he's only working from the scripts. But as I'll talk about a little bit more on the second half of the program when I do my review by myself, there's a lot of third doctor in the fourth doctor here. And maybe it's because Terrence didn't have access to Tom Baker's improvisational genius. And of course, he was the third doctor's co-showrunner. So he's defaulting to Pertwee Mannerisms where Tom Baker needs to be. So there's no quoting Macbeth here. 
Uh, you don't get the same level of um, physical comedy that Tom was able to do with Liz Sladen and particularly Ian Martyr. There's no business where Harry almost loses his arm in the door and the doctor shoots him the dirtiest look in the world. Right. Yeah. There, he, I, and, and some of the language he chose to change from the script. I mean, imbecile. I mean, the, the most famous line, the most quotable line from this whole serial, Harry Sullivan is an imbecile. He, you know, he changed it to idiot. I know maybe he did that for the kiddies. Maybe it's a you know, less, you know, it's less of a 25 cent word. You know, I can understand why he did that. And he did that, uh, um, also, with uh, the scene where Harry and Sarah are um, escaping the manacles, they find out that you know gold is a soft, you know, um, soft metal, so we can you know crush our way out of it. And Sarah is in the serial says something real. It's really funny. Well, we just can't sit around here glittering, but which is really funny. But Dick's changed that to we just can't sit around counting our money. You know, I just, I just not as funny at us all. And, you know, and, and you do miss, look, I don't think that's a visual thing. And I honestly don't think that's more of a, uh, you know, hey, it's easier language for the kids to understand, you know. It, but look, at television is a video, visual medium. You're going to lose a lot of stuff, like a lot of the jokes that improv, as we say, you know, like uh, when uh, Dr. Lester and the commander are captured and are on the floor uh, of Nerva Beacon behind the Cybermen and, you know, and they all, they have the, 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 the see no evil, speak no evil hand gestures, you know, one, yeah, one's got, the doctor's got his hands over his eyes and Lester's covering his ears. It's like, you don't, you don't get that in a novel. And you, as you said, they take out the Shakespeare too, which was in the script originally. Hmm, interesting. Know? I was going to say, cause I have the season 12 Blu-ray and you have the actual camera scripts in there, which reflect the stuff before Tom Baker goes into the studio and changes everything to make himself laugh. I didn't go back recently and check out those scripts, but I would have assumed that that was just a Tom Baker improv ad lib on the day of. I didn't realize that was scripted by Robert Holmes. I thought it would be too, but I did. Check. I have the the script book, uh, the the Tom Baker first season script book. I don't know if you have this book. Oh, I but, and if I don't have that, I am envious of that. Wow. Yeah. Oh, it's a great book. Uh, BBC uh, Books publication. But it, it literally has um, the scripts, and you know they cross out what was in the original script, and 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 highlight what the actual words were, and they cross. It's really it's really good. Uh, oh, but yeah, that was in there. And I but and to, to go back to the, 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 the your query about maybe he had the tapes, maybe just going for script. I think it was the script mainly because of the way he describes the Cybermats. You know, of course the Cybermats you know, had glowing eyes in, in the previous series that they were in. Uh, but that is in this script as well. They, they talk about their glowing eyes, although he attributes you know, them having red glowing eyes. And I think he was just bored with the Cybermats in general. He does a lot of things that um, he, he tries to make them uh, a little bit more sexy, uh, you know, like they spew the dust. Of course, that doesn't happen on screen either. Right. But, uh he he does flourish, but one of, speaking of Cybermats, one of the things he does add, and I think it's a total mistake. He adds in a, for a lot of reasons. He adds a, a Cybermat attack on Sarah right at the top of the novel, and I'm, I, it, it never happens in the script, and it never happens on screen, of course. And it, it, it's it's egregious for a couple of reasons. Uh, the first is like, oh my God, he, you know, he does his typical thing, unfortunately, with Sarah, and says, she, "I mean, I'll read, I'll read you the passage." It's 
I yes. remember exactly. Page, you know what I'm talking about? Um, uh, okay. The metal creature moved a little to one side of her as if to get a clear spring at her throat. Sarah caught a flash of the movement in the corner of her eye, spun around and re and reacted in true feminine style. She let out a loud, hearty scream. And, I mean, it's just like, first of all, diminishing Sarah again. Uh, shame on you, Terrence. And, uh, but the whole attack, you know, the, the doctor recognizes it. For, in the novel, he recognizes the Cyberman, the Cybermat for what it is. Uh, and he tells his companions it's a Cybermat and nothing more. I mean, they don't know what a Cyberman is at that point. They don't know the Cybermats are connected to the Cybermen. If you see a Cybermat lurking around, wouldn't you want to tell your friends there might be a cyber dude hanging around the corner? Don't tread lightly, you know? Uh, it doesn't make any sense. And then it kind of diminishes, you know, the way the doctor really figures it all out eventually when he does find the Cyberman and controls it, you know, takes the controls from Kellerman and all that kind of stuff. He, I think, I think he diminishes the doctor's power to reason and, and work through things by adding that simple attack that never happened. I think it's, and he does this again. I mean, I, I, you know, he, he adds, Dix adds a whole his whole business of the doctor having an alternate plan to get the bombs off their backs once they transmat down to Voga. And this never occurs in the script. This never occurs on screen. The doc, you know, he, the, the, it carries on for several chapters in the book that, you know, we, we, we hear the, well, we read the doctor's thought process of how in the intervening time, you know, once they get the bombs off the backs, maybe he'll be, they, they, the, you know, the cyber leader tells them they're going to have 14 minutes to get back to transmit. And, and the doctor plans he's going to dismantle them in that, in that 14 minutes and, 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 and avert the attack and the explosion. But in the same time, he still includes, you know, you know, when Lester tells him, you know, what are we doing? This is so pointless. They're going to kill us anyways. And the doctor in this in the novel agrees with that. He's like, oh, they're, they're going to then why do you they're definitely going to kill us? He, he mentions, you know, they're not going to give us our deed will be done for them and they will be useless to them. So they're not going to get that time. He says that in the novel. So why does he have this plan? Why does he think this plan can work? Why does Dix even write that? It doesn't make sense. It can't, I think he's just trying to give the doctor a little more agency because in the second half of the story, the, this is this is one of the top, toughest outings for the doctor there is. I mean, he's got a bomb on his back. He can't find his companions. Things are going bad. Things are going real bad for the doctor. So maybe I, I can see he's trying to give the doctor a little bit more agency, and but it's just still a weak plan. And I think that that, that diminishes the doctor in a lot of ways. And it contradicts what the doctor says himself later in the novel. So I, I just think it was a big mistake on Dick's part to add that. I'll tell you, one of the advantages of doing this podcast in publication order is you can watch the evolution of the line because it starts off as third doctor only. Then they rewrite the stories to fit into a continuity. This is the third Tom Baker story, okay? At this point, the Target books have been in continuous print for about two and a half years, not counting the Frederick Muller reprints of the Hartnell stories that came out in 73. First original Target is Spearhead, January 74. We're now in May 76. Book number three featuring Tom Baker. Book number three featuring Tom and Sarah Jane. Terrence goes back in each of these three books and he weakens Sarah Jane. In Giant Robot, he has her faint, which he didn't faint on television. Mm -hmm. In 
Loch Ness Monster, he has her faint, which he didn't do on TV in Terror of the Zygons. And here, that passage you read is in the Target book. It's page 17, top of chapter 2. Probably a different page number in the Pinnacle version, which is one of the few page Pinnacles 12. that I don't have, page 12. Yep. But this screaming in true feminine style and a loud and hearty scream, that was never Liz Slade. And she was the companion who came in and she was modern and she had agencies and she was independent and she wasn't doing that stuff. So he has to go in in every single book and weaken her just to fit into what he thinks a female companion should be, which is not fair to Liz Sladen, especially now, 10 years after Liz Sladen left us too soon. And when you watch Sarah on TV, the way that he portrays her in the books is just disappointing. It's just not the Sarah that we want on television. Well, let's be honest. Um, Sarah, as a character from her first outing in The Time Warrior, you know, just devolved every single episode she was in literally to the point of being a child in her final episode. I mean, you know, babbling Eldrad must live, uh, it, you know, wearing, you know, a little kitty outfit. I mean, Andy literally. Pan, right. Yeah. It's just like, what the heck? It's, it's a real shame. And, you know, and, and she was basically in her last two serials, she was also uh, hypnotized, you know? Uh, so uh, the production team didn't do it. I wrote about this in the, the very first Outside In volume because I did the review for The Time Warrior, which happens to be Sarah's first story. Mm-hmm. And I talked about how Sarah has the best debut of any companion because she is thrown in the past, doesn't phase her, stands up to the bad guys, manages to kidnap the third doctor as an evil wizard in her second or third week on the program. No other companion gets a start that strong. And as you say, once you move into the Hinchcliffe years, her role changes. She becomes Tom Baker's, I think the discontinuity guy calls her a flapping ornament rather yeah. than a uh, powerful wizard-capturing time traveler. But Liz Sladen was so good in the role that she was able to sell and be you know, completely winning, even when the script, like in Planet of Evil, wasn't doing her any favors because she had that magical ability. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, this script was also famously rewritten by Holmes, uh, obviously. And I do think he tries with her. I mean, obviously, he also wrote her first episode, you know, Time Warrior. You know, there's there's little bits throughout his tenure when he's rewriting, uh, you know, for instance, in uh, Pyramids of Mars. I mean, she can handle a rifle, you know, a shotgun. I mean, that's uh, that kind of stuff is pretty cool. But you're right. It, overall, as I said, the production team doesn't do a hell of a lot of favors, you know, throughout her years, especially Hedgecliffe's years. Yeah, and I mentioned the outside in that I was in. I want to just give a shout out to your outside in piece for the original Star Trek. You wrote a piece about the time you met DeForest Kelly doing some uh, labor <laughs> at his house. That's one of my favorite yeah. outside in pieces of all time, man. Yeah, it was pretty cool, man. Uh, look, I, I, as I mentioned, I'm a huge Star Trek fan, and you know, it was my first, you know, foray into the genre, and the first, you know, thing I really solidified my love for it. Um, but you know, it's 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 a funny little piece. Uh, I don't know if you, you have the time or want me to tell it here, but you know, otherwise, I could just read <laughs> read the story as it happened and outside in. Yeah, I would definitely recommend that all my listeners, most of them will have Outside In already, but it is definitely worth seeking out. That is Outside In Boldly Goes, which is the first original Star Trek volume. Yeah, and I, and I, and I think the uh, the story I was actually quote-unquote writing for was the Ambergus element, uh, the, one of the uh, 
the uh, oh one of the animated ones. The animated ones, yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, I, I got involved in that fairly late, and all the other ones. I think the only other thing that wasn't taken was uh, I'm Mud, and I just elected not to do I'm Mud. <laughs> I wanted to do one of the animated ones. I have uh, fond memories of watching them. When they, I think when they originally broadcast, believe it or not, I was really young. 73 years old. See, I didn't see the animated ones until Nickelodeon, the kids' channel, managed to get the Star Treks in 86, right around the time that The Voyage Home comes out. And that was their way of cashing in on Star Trek. So I was watching all those animated Star Treks on Saturday morning. And the, the animation style, you know, it really isn't a kid-friendly show because there's so much philosophy and so much talking, so they're not really taking the best advantage of the medium. No. And they couldn't get Walter Koenig either, but I love them, you know, 12 years old, watching them on Nickelodeon. Yeah. I actually, years later in the 90s, I bought the uh, Laserdisc box set of the animated shows. Oh, wow. That's sweet. Yeah, I, yeah it was great. Um, and, it, you know, back when Laser, I don't know if anyone even remembers what the hell those are, but uh, I, I no longer have that. I sold that on eBay for like twice as much as what I bought it for uh, a couple of years later when I was getting a little rid of all my collections. Well, again, there can't be too many people with working laser disc players left. So yeah, you definitely uh, sell it high. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what I want to do with you now, Dave, as we're wrapping up um, this episode is I want to play a game with you. And this is a new game that I have not played on the program before. And I think you're just the person to do it. Okay. I'm going to play for you. I have drawn three random classic series episodes and I'm going to play you a brief audio clip of the cliffhanger. And you are going to guess not only the episode, but you're also going to guess which part it is. You know, part one, part two, part seven, whatever. That's brutal. If anyone can do it, I think that you can. So uh, let's play three rounds of Guess the Cliffhanger. You're a winner if you get two out of the three. And you get bonus points if you are three out of the three. Oh, man. I don't know. From Earth? Then you are the one who... No. No, that cannot be. We shall return. Bring this two-leg. We shall question him with the female. Now, just a minute, your man. Over there! That's the clip. Name the story and name the episode part. That is the cliffhanger two. Well, you're right. That 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 is a rather easy one. Um, episode six of Planet of the Spiders. Well, you got the story right. I'm going to give you a second oh. chance on the episode because episode oh. six clearly is the regeneration. Well, yeah, but he fell over the towers. Oh, that's right. He made it back. Oh shoot. Uh, episode four. Ooh, close. It is actually the end of episode three. Three, darn it. Uh, That's good, see, I'm though. not good. I'm not quite – some of the middle – you know, it's a six-parter. I get tough in, in, in the middle. Yeah. Well, let's try another one. I'm going to give you half credit for that one, so you, you're still well-situated. Oh. Okay. We are in desperate trouble. Osgood is dead, and we're – Look. Look.
So there we have a cliffhanger minus the electronic sting. This predates the electronic sting. Guess yeah. the story and guess the cliffhanger number. Oof, that is tough. I know it's one of two stories. Uh, two stories I've only seen maybe twice. Uh, that's got to be... Man, I actually... Man, I, is, is it... The Seeds of Death? Yes, it is. It is The Seeds it, of Death. And it's probably episode four. Oh, uh, I'll, I'll give you a second chance on the episode. Uh, five. It is episode one, I'll tell you, because it's the, it's the first time that we see the Ice Warriors. It's their introduction. Oh, my God. Yeah, see, that I might not be obvious from the audio, though. Yeah, I, I, I watched that uh you know in my run but that was only like the fourth time i've seen it <laughs> shame i shouldn't know it i i gotta I, my trouton is pretty bad unfortunately it is, it is not the best the trouton as much as i love trouton the trouton era was the roughest patch of my pilgrimage because the show was oh, falling yeah. apart the showrunners were bad terran sticks hadn't taken over yet seeds of death is not something that's going to get your show renewed no not at all so you've got two half points. You've got one point. If you can get the story and cliffhanger to the last one, I'll consider you a winner of the inaugural game of Guess That Cliffhanger. Oh, God. Pressure's on now. Got to get out of here! How? This one. Oh, no. Oh. Back. Oh, now what? I don't know. I really think this could be the end. Sixth Doctor. Uh, oh, is it uh, Mysterious Planet? Yes, yes, it is. And All it, you it have to do is be... guess the episode number, and you're a yeah. winner. It's got to be three. <sighs> two. Yes, yes, it is two. It is part two. <laughs> uh, that's I you know how many guesses can I get? I guess I cheated. That's I got I got one and a half points just because I know the stories and nothing. I'm terrible with some of those cliffhangers. Talk, talk to me about Terror of the Zygons, I'm good, but, you know. I picked uh, the cliffhangers at random, and those were the three that came up. Those, hey, those are good ones. Those are good ones, De- definitely. I, I got to – I just, you know, I, I know the stories. I, I know what happens in them. I just – sometimes these the I do get confused of what's at the end of what, what episode. I've had these conversations before, too. See, for me, the cliffhangers were part of the thing that got me hooked on the show at 11 years old because most kids' TV wasn't doing cliffhangers back then. So when I got the novelizations, I would mark off the cliffhanger moment in the book. So I just kept desperate track of what the cliffhangers were. And if it was a story that I was seeing or I didn't have the book yet, I would write them down on random scraps of paper and save the random scraps of paper and then transfer them in the book. So when Vengeance on Varro's first aired as a four-parter on my PBS station, I grabbed a mm-hmm. monthly cable program and wrote down the three cliffhangers on the back. And of course, two of them weren't even cliffhangers at all because Vengeance on Varro's was not a four-part story. 
right. and I eventually transferred them into the uh, book when I got it. But you can you see here on page 65 of my copy of Revenge of the Cybermen, I wrote episode three in pencil where the cliffhanger goes. So for me, the cliffhangers are what I identify with the program. Yeah, I, I, I agree. A lot of them are great. I, I think, you know, as I said, Terra Zygon's episode one, I think is the greatest ever. Where it's where Sarah does scream, actually. Uh, and, and, and and the stinger kind of matches the pitch. It's great. But just that, that Zygon, like, just like you hear that growl come from it. It's just creepy as hell. It's really effective. And Bonnie Langford had the voice that literally could blend into the electronic scream. Nobody did it better. Oh, than the her. Vorvoids, yeah. Yeah. But the first two cliffhangers and vervoids, both times she blends right into the electronic yep. scream. Yeah. It's much better than zooming into uh, the sixth doctor's face for a cliffhanger. I'll tell you that. Right. Well, <laughs> if Terrence Dix gets podcast subscriptions in heaven, I don't think he's very happy with either of us right now, but I think we gave a good showing to revenge of the Cybermen in the book. And certainly the episode, I don't think you're going to find two bigger fans of the episodes than you and me. So well, definitely. I, I, it is just a shame, though. I think I, I think he got bored halfway through, where he abandoned some of the extra flourishes he puts in that I actually enjoyed. You know, like you know, describing Kellerman as getting you know fat and bored. You know, while there's nothing for him to do as a civilian on there, and some of the things even early on with Lester, he you know is a great thing where he you know he gets inside Lester's head and wants the commander to give, give him a, a swipe, give him a chance to get the information out of Kelman. <laughs> right, really right, funny. right. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just, he just lost all that halfway through, unfortunately. Uh, maybe he didn't like the story. I mean, famously, you know, you know, during his tenure in the third doctor, they didn't, they didn't have a, a Cyberman featured story. And I guess they, they just didn't like him. You know, I, I him, him and let's just didn't like them as uh, creatures. Cause he, they, they weren't, uh, I guess they, they couldn't show emotions. <laughs> yeah, they were boring. Whereas the Pertwee era thrives on emotion because it's not just the monsters. It's the way that the characters interact with the monsters. So you have Joe Grant mm-hmm. sacrificing herself to save the doctor for Azal. Mm-hmm. You have Joe Grant stupidly trying to fetch a maggot with her bare hands so she can cure Cliff Jones. This is why the Pertwee era was such a big influence on RTD because he was doing that same stuff with, with, with the new series in 2005, 6, 7. So the Pertwee era was about the characters, whereas other eras of Doctor were just about the monsters and the spectacle. Pertwee put it together. And you can't do that with the Cybermen because they're emotionless. Yeah. And, you know, and going back to Sarah, Sarah Jane Smith, you know, and, and what they did to her, actually, in the original shooting script, which they abandoned for the show and interesting if he was going off the scripts dicks left out she does one of the most heroic things ever when she's trying to get back to the transmat station on volga to get back up to save the doctor from nerva beacon there a, a grenade lands in front of her a live grenade and she scoops it up and throws it and it explodes seconds later oh wow i mean yeah <laughs> it's like can you, that would have been really cool that would have been you know, get get rid of the cyberman guards that way so she can get back up to the transmat you know uh but you know, they all they all avoided that. And they probably didn't they probably couldn't explode stuff in the in the Wookiee caves anyways. I mean that I always thought that when Lester bought himself that the help helped the doctor's plan, that was the weirdest effect ever. It was just sort of this they lit a match in front of the camera lens. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not even clear that that's strong enough to kill him. Maybe some flesh wounds. I know. And that's a bomb that's supposed to destroy this entire planet. Well, 
you know, exterior shooting in 1975. It isn't quite the same as what you can do now with a green screen or with a stone cold Steve Austin driving over a car. Not, not at all. Well, Dave, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a blast. We'll get you back on the show sometime real soon. Oh, I'd love it, Jason. I had a blast. I, it was really cool. I, I could, I could, I could talk about this crap forever. And you certainly shall on this show. Catch you later, man. All right. Thanks a lot. Bye now. Doctor Who and the Revenge of the Cybermen, written by Terence Dix, televised as Revenge of the Cybermen, teleplay by Robert Holmes, screen credit to Jerry Davis, televised in April and May 1975, published in May 1976. A mysterious plague strikes space beacon Nerva, killing its victims within minutes. When Doctor Who lands, only four humans remain alive. One of these seemed to be in league with the nearby planet of gold, Voga. Or is he in fact working for the dreaded Cybermen, who are now determined to destroy their old enemies, the Vogans? The Doctor, Sarah, and Harry find themselves trapped in the midst of a terrifying struggle to death between the ruthless, power-hungry Cybermen and the determined, desperate Vogans. Here's an interesting provenance to this episode of the podcast. The novelization of Revenge of the Cybermen was the very first novelization I reviewed for my old blog, Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels at WordPress. I posted the review in April 2011. I had started a reread of the novelizations in random order in late 2010, for no particular reason, reading about a book a week. The first novelization that I drew in random order was Snake Dance, and the second was Time Lash. I remember that much. The idea to turn those random rereads into a blog came about 11 years ago this month, while bored at my in-law's house during the Passover holiday that year. And, come full circle, I am also recording most of this episode from that same location. I don't recall how Revenge came to be the first story that I reviewed for the blog, rather than Snake Dance or Time Lash. I do remember that I reread the book over a four-day period, stopping each day at the appropriate episode cliffhangers, And by random happenstance, the day that I was reading the Part 4 material was the day that Liz Sladen passed away. Unfortunately, this is not Sarah Jane Smith's best showing in a novelization. We'll come to that. But mentally reading her lines in Liz Sladen's voice that day was a pretty bittersweet way of saying goodbye to Liz. What this portion of the episode is not is my reading out that old blog entry verbatim. That entry is not very good, to be honest. It's short, by word count, and doesn't have a lot of the later detail that I would go into when I had the 2016-2017 incarnation of the blog, which itself was the basis of the first 16 episodes of this podcast, Doctor Who and the Daleks all the way up through Planet of the Spiders. That blog post also made a pretty huge factual error. So here's one verbatim quote from that post. This is one of several books I own in pinnacle format, with the text Americanized by its U.S. publisher, and with dramatic, albeit poorly adapted, cover art. Consequently, I've never owned the Target edition. I bought this one later in my novelization collecting career, long after I'd seen the TV story, and before this month, I don't think I'd actually read it more than once or twice. And you can insert the appropriate record scratch sound effect here, 
All that stuff that I said on the blog in April 2011, uh, none of that's actually true. First of all, the Pinnacle cover art is not poorly adapted. It's gorgeous. Second of all, come to find out, I don't own the Pinnacle version of Revenge. Now, I have seven of the ten Pinnacle releases, but my copy of Revenge happens to be the Target edition, the 1983 reprint. That's the last reprint before the Targets formally entered the U.S. market, so it does not have the American dollars price on the back cover, just prices for the U.K., Australia, and Malta, and does not have the address for Lyle Stewart Incorporated on Enterprise Avenue in Secaucus, New Jersey. Now, I was out of town the week that I read the book in early 2011, and I'd been reading the PDF on my Kindle. All the PDFs for the Target books are available on archive.org, but please do not own the PDF unless you've actually purchased the book first. These are books worth owning in hard copy. Anyway, I clearly hadn't touched uh, the paper copy of the book in at least 20 years at that point, and just incorrectly assumed that I had the pinnacle back home. But nope, I do have the Target, and it's in my hand right now as I uh, prepare this episode. You can learn a lot about revenge before you even get to the first page of the story proper, which in my Target edition is page 7. Take a gander at that table of contents, for instance. Chapter 6 of the revenge novelization is called Attack of the Cybermen. That's part of the accidental trend of 1970s Target books, predicting the names of future Doctor Who stories. Chapter 12 in this book, The Biggest Bang in History, comes close to the title of Stephen Moffat's Series 5 finale, from June 2010, but not quite. Oh, and the copyright page gives co-author credit to Jerry Davis, because his prologue, The Creation of the Cybermen, is reproduced here, even though it is not listed on the table of contents in my edition. Davis had included that prologue in his previous novelizations of the Moonbase and the Tenth Planet, both of which I've covered already on this podcast. Chapter 1 opens with one of those grabby Terrence Dicks opening lines. In the silent blackness of space, he writes, the gleaming metal shape of Nerva Beacon hung like a giant gyroscope. Right after that is our introduction to the TARDIS crew, and Terrence's description of Tom Baker here is much closer in evolution to what would later be his standard blurb. Quote, a very tall, thin man whose motley collection of vaguely bohemian garments included an incredibly long scarf and a battered soft hat jammed on top of a mop of wildly curling brown hair. Very close to the end result, but not quite there yet. The Doctor also has an habitual cheery optimism, which is a bit closer to the actual Tom Baker than the line very thin. This is still in the days when the Target books formed a loose continuity, and this is the third novelization of a fourth Doctor Sarah Harry story, so there's a footnote back in time to Doctor Who and the Giant Robot, and even better, a footnote to Genesis of the Daleks, which in the event was not published when this came out. It is the next book out after this one. Terence does not stint on the violence. The corridor was full of dead bodies, corpse after corpse, a long line of them stretching ahead, twisted and contorted in the stiff, ungainly attitudes of sudden death. Sarah, through whose eyes we see this ghastly vista, buries her face in the doctor's shoulder. For the rest of her life, he writes, Sarah Jane Smith was to be haunted by the memory of that nightmarish stumble down the long curved corridor filled with corpses. And fear not, faithful Doctor Who literature listeners, 
Once again, we get a character in this book described as burly. Here, that's Lester of the Inerva Beacon, who's also described as tough. Of Kelman, Terence writes in the prose through Commander Stevenson's eyes, wondering why the space plague had seen fit to spare someone who was not only unnecessary, but nasty with it. Grim stuff, right? But, as much as we feel for Sarah at the sight of the ghastly corpses in Chapter 1, Terence undercuts our favorite companion right at the top of Chapter 2. You know the line, Dave read it out for us earlier. Sarah caught a flash of movement in the corner of her eye, spun round and reacted in true feminine style. She let out a loud, hearty scream. Now, I like this book a little better than Dave did, but still, this line is really hard to get around. I do like the rhyme, not a rat, a cybermat. Here's how Terence introduces the Vogans. They were humanoid in form, with high-domed foreheads and dark-furred faces. Their eyes were large and luminous, like those of creatures accustomed to the dark, and the lighting in the room would have been uncomfortably dim for human eyes. Keep that in mind when we come to the novelization of the Sensorites, probably about 75 episodes or so from now. I wonder if those descriptions are going to sound familiar. The Vogans on TV were well-acted. Good lord, what a cast. David Collings, Michael Wisher... Kevin freaking Stoney, all Doctor Who regulars on the guest cast side. But the writing for the Montevo is pretty strictly one-dimensional, and Terence does good work in the margins, trying to help the reader sort out who's who, under those ill-fitting masks that muffle the actor's speech and facial expressions. Voris mastered his impatience, Terence writes. Magrick was a timic fool, even for a Vogan, but he was also a scientific genius, and Voris needed him. The big Vogan put a powerful armor on Magritte's thin shoulders. I don't recall Magritte being a scientific genius on TV, that's for sure. Stevenson and Lester, apprehending the fourth doctor in chapter two, is a scene that tries to capture the magic of Tom Baker's physical chemistry and the way he'd ignore bullies by carrying on pleasant chats with side characters. But the line here, the doctor performed introductions with all the aplomb of a vicar at a garden party, is definitely as we talked about earlier, John Pertwee, and not Tom. Chapter 3 has another old friend of a line. Such was the authority in the Doctor's voice that Stevenson found himself lowering his blaster without quite realizing why. Old friends like these endear me to books that aren't even among Terence's best work. I also like Terence's future history in the same chapter. Cyberman. The name rang only the faintest of bells in Stevenson's mind some legendary war long centuries ago. There had been so many enemies when man first ventured out among the stars. The cyber spaceship, which also debuts in Chapter 3, is described as scarred and battered, but still efficient and deadly. And I can hear Carrie Blyton's theme in my head as I read this page. When I first saw Part 1 of the TV episode as a kid, I VHS taped it, and I recall rewinding and playing this one glimpse of the Cybermen several times. That three-note fanfare is pretty much burned into my head. Dave and I spoke earlier about what lines from TV are missing from the book. The line that I like from Lester, a line that I've internalized and used in daily conversations so many times over the years, is his description of the dying warner. He's as tough as an old boot. That line is not here. There's an odd line where the Doctor, snooping around Kelman's quarters at the end of the Part 1 material, 
notices that Kelman's communications device is of alien design, and this causes the doctor to shiver. This establishes Kelman's duplicity, I guess, although the doctor had guessed it already, but the line makes no sense in retrospect. Why would the doctor, of all beings, shiver at a non-human bit of technology? Later, as Kelman overheats the room in a clumsy attempt to kill the doctor, Terence does ramp the descriptions back up. Little spurts of flickering flame began blossoming in the molten plastic, like yellow flowers. This makes the doctor feel, quote, like a chop on a barbecue griddle. Terence also describes the beacon's food supplies, and Sarah, quote, realized that the crew had been living on pills and concentrates so long that they took it for granted, and she thought longingly of steak and chips. More vivid imagery in Chapter 4, when the doctor disables a cybermat with gold dust, resolving the Part 1 cliffhanger, which, because this is still early days for Terence, does not occur exactly at the Part 3 cliffhanger, but rather in the middle of the chapter's last page. The cybermat is described as distorted, almost melted by the effect of the gold dust, and looked like a lump of shapeless metal scrap. Not on TV, it didn't. I love Harry getting a POV scene about his comprehension of transmet technology, which causes him to gape at a device that can, quote, send a person as easily as a telephone message. Only two writers got to adapt Harry Sullivan TV adventures for Target, Terence, and then Harry himself, Ian Martyr. Terence here makes an effort at keeping up with Martyr, whose own season 12 books are naturally more invested in making Harry a 3D character with internal thought processes. Chapter 4 sees Terence describing what the Cybermen sound like. Dave and I, as you heard earlier, are big fans of Christopher Robbie's cyber leader voice. Terence has different ideas. The cyber voices in the book are sibilant, whispering, toneless. We're told, Cybermen do not have feelings. So that's not really Christopher Robbie that's being described on the printed page. We're introduced to Kevin Stoney's character, Tyram, in Chapter 5. Stoney, so beloved for his work as human allies of the Daleks and Cybermen in 1960s TV epics, is not discussed quite as often for his work in Revenge of the Cybermen. Terence at least applies his myth-making to the otherwise forgotten character. For the hundredth time, Voris wondered how Tyram always made him feel so ineffectual. Or, one of Tyram's gentle requests had the force of a royal command. For all his mildness, Tyram was someone to be reckoned with. Later, in Chapter 7, when Sarah and Harry are brought before him, Tyram, quote, made a far more favorable impression on them than had the blustering Vorus, though both sensed an edge of steel beneath the mildness. And Sarah can hear, quote, centuries of fear and hatred in the way that he, quote, hisses the word, Cybermen. Unfortunately, Terence retains for Chapter 5 a questionable Harry Sullivan line, fat-shaming Sarah's ankles. I mean, dude... I don't care if this was written in 1976. That sort of thing was never cool. We talked earlier about how the Doctor is a bit harsh in this story, uncompromising. Terence expands the Part 2 bit, that's in Chapter 5, where the Doctor threatens Kelman with death by Cybermat. Terence really plays up the moment, adding a line about how Kelman will, quote, die in agony as the others died. The Doctor's voice, we're told, was calm and reasonable, as if explaining an interesting experiment to a class of students. Now that is Tom Baker. Terence adds a fix to some of Voris's wacky idioms. Here, the philosophy of a cringing mouse line, that's in Chapter 5, is amended to Cave Mouse. Then in Chapter 6, 
Terence converts the Wookiee hole location to a tiny little corner of TC4. Quote, an endless succession of seemingly identical mine galleries. Like that line born of necessity, during Doctor Who's Lime Grove D-Days, all these corridors look the same. Now, I was going to say that I really like how we get introduced to the Cybermen in Chapter 6. Stevenson can scarcely believe his eyes. He'd heard of Cybermen, even seen old pictures of them, but meeting one at close quarters like this was very different. The creature was at least seven feet tall, maybe more. It was made entirely of some kind of silvery material that might have been either metal or plastic. There was no real difference between the Cyberman's face and body, its clothes, and the many strange-shaped accessories attached to its chest. The face was a terrifyingly blank parody of humanity, round circles for eyes, a thin slit for a mouth. Above the forehead was what looked like some kind of lamp, and two strange handle-like projections in the place of ears. There were weapons in the Cyberman's hands, plain foot-long metal rods with white cylinders on the end. Though that last bit deprives us of what so amused Dave, the guns mounted where the Cyberman's brains should be. Now, I was going to say, as I was typing that description out from my script, I really, really liked it. Um, but uh, I'm recording this on the Saturday, and earlier this morning, I saw the latest entry in Jim Sangster's terrific blog, Escape to Danger. He, too, is going through the target novelizations in publication order. He is quite a bit of a ways ahead of me. That blog is also a major inspiration for this podcast, and I love seeing Jim's insights and the way he talks about the differences between the televised episodes and the book. He was also very taken with Terence's description of the Cyberman, and he also uh, read out that quote, the creature was at least seven feet tall, all the way up through two strange handle-like projections in his blog, except he wasn't talking about this book. He was talking about the novelization of The Wheel in Space, which came out at least a dozen years later. So it's funny that we were both taken with the same description that Terence uses verbatim 12 years apart. Terence must have had a really good file of notes to be able to reuse that stuff word for word a decade later. Really marvel at Terence's capacity to distill the TV site into a pretty glorious word picture and then save the macro and use it a dozen years later. That's just awesome. I would love to have a go at Terence's private notes, assuming there's still an archive of those. After shooting the Doctor and Lester and Stevenson at the Part 2 cliffhanger, again in mid-Chapter 6 rather than the end, the Cyberman's declaration of victory is delivered without triumph. Cybermen have no feelings, Terence says again. It was merely recording the facts. In the next paragraph, a Cyberman rips a door off its hinges, tearing the steel sheeting like paper. Now that's awesome. In possibly the most meta sentence of the original Target run, Kelman gets this moment. Unaware that he was using one of science fiction's immortal cliches, Kelman said, Take me to your leader. I'd completely forgotten that line before this reread, when really, it should be my gravestone epitaph. Kelman also gets dialogue here, inventorying the unconscious doctor's pockets, which is better staged by Michael E. Bryant on TV as a wordless sequence, punctuated by the actor's aggrieved facial expressions. What great rewards have you promised Kelman? 
The matter is of no interest to you. Everything's of interest to me. And Cybermen possess nothing that a human might want. You are incorrect. Then what is it? You've no home planet, no influence, nothing. You're just a pathetic bunch of tin soldiers skulking about the galaxy in an ancient spaceship. You speak unwisely. We are destined to be rulers of all the cosmos. No, I don't think so somehow. You tried that once and you were nearly wiped out. Because of Voga and its gold. If humans had not had the resources of Voga, the cyber war would have ended in glorious triumph. It was a glorious triumph for human ingenuity. They discovered your weakness and invented the glitter gun. And that was the end of Cybermen. Except as gold-plated souvenirs that people use as hat stands. Watch it, Doctor. I think you've riled him. That is why Volga must be destroyed. Before we begin our second campaign. Oh, there's to be a second campaign, is there? We have enough parts in our ship to build an entirely new cyber army. And this time, Doctor, it will be invincible. Cybermen principle more efficiency than animal organisms. That is why we will rule the galaxy. Loose thinking. The trouble with Cybermen is that they've got hydraulic muscles. And of course, hydraulic brains to go with them. Put that down. Thank you. Now, if I'm correct about what this contains, and should accidentally drop it... There's not only a chapter called Attack of the Cybermen, but in Chapter 7, Tyram delivers the episode title. Has Voris, in his madness, brought upon our heads the revenge of the Cybermen? On TV, Kevin Stoney had said vengeance, but here it's just plain old revenge. In what I expect is a deleted scene included in the book, Voris and Magrick have a private conversation in Chapter 7, which casually reveals that Kelman is their agent, earlier and much less dramatically than the revelation on TV. The scenes from Part 3 are reordered in the book, but we do get an explanation of the Armageddon Convention, a casually dropped trademark bit of Robert Holmes' world-building on TV by throwaway reference, which in the book is described further as a famous interplanetary treaty in which the more intelligent races of the galaxy had attempted to outlaw some of the more lethal weapons of destruction. The Cybermen, like the Daleks, had refused to sign or even to attend the convention. Cybermen did not subscribe to any theory of morality when it came to war. Total destruction of the enemy was their one aim. As Dave mentioned earlier, Terence does seem to mock the Cybermen as they were written for TV. In Chapter 7, the Doctor detects overtones of hate in the Cyber Leader's voice when talking about Voga. This expands upon the Doctor's, in my opinion, terrific confrontation with Christopher Robbie in Part 3, except, alas, Terence deletes the line about glitter guns turning Cybermen into gold-plated hat stands. But the Doctor does dive into, quote, a series of reverse head-over-heels roles, which Tom Baker and Terry Walsh, who both played the fourth Doctor on TV, never attempted on screen in Revenge of the Cybermen. And I do admire that Terrence takes a lightning-quick moment on TV, the Doctor threatening to drop a cobalt bomb, into a mini-cliffhanger that ends Chapter 7. Terrence seems to really enjoy writing that confrontation between Tom Baker and Christopher Robbie, Stretching it out into chapter 8. Pull the other one. It's got bells on, recalls the Doctor in 20th century slang. Terence also dips into the Doctor's head, with Baker all casually nonchalant on TV, wearing a bomb and playing with a yo-yo. But here the Doctor tries to come up with an escape plan, point by point. He does not say, careful, careful, I might explode. He merely says, careful, old chap, you never know. I might go off. Which again, sounds more like John Pertwee talking.
And then Terence jumps POV over to the cyber leader, who internally gloats over having double-crossed the Doctor by promising him a grace period with the bombs that does not exist. Kelman gets some POV late in Chapter 8, and Harry in Chapter 9 gets a turn, observing that Sarah Jane had always refused to accept the role of the helpless heroine, although he then promptly undercuts that by calling her, quote, old girl. The Vogan Sky Striker missile, which on TV proudly bore the NASA logo, in Chapter 9 is described as slim and deadly looking, unlike the TV rocket. In another deleted scene that's in Chapter 9 but not on TV, Voris harshly repudiates Kelman. It's pretty brutal and uncompromising, with Terence toying with making Kelman a little more sympathetic, although not that much more. The alliance is over. You failed. What do I care what becomes of you? Voris sneers, as Kelman begs and protests that they've been partners. I can't quite imagine the supercilious TV Kelman, deliciously played by the late Jeremy Wilkin, as having delivered these lines. And when Kelman dies just before the Part 3 cliffhanger, which, completing a rare Terence trifecta, comes again in mid-chapter, mid-sentence, in fact, in mid-chapter 10, and not at the Chapter 9 cliffhanger, as in just about every other later Terence novelization of a four-part TV adventure, Harry just doesn't care. Harry felt no sympathy. As far as he was concerned, Kelman had been luckier than he deserved. Dave is right, as usual. The Harry Sullivan is an idiot line is just really not as funny as... Harry Sullivan is an imbecile! There's more deleted scenes and dialogue. The Cybermen talking to each other in Chapter 10 goes on much longer than the corresponding TV scenes from the beginning of Part 4. Tyrum gets a little more heroism in a line that also doesn't appear on TV. If I lead the last attack, perhaps they will be ashamed of the following me. Harry also says Kelman copped it back in the Rockfall. Rather than the funnier on TV line, uh, he's dead by the way, which is followed by double takes from Ronald Lee Hunt and William Marlowe. The Part 4 material adds some really interesting new perspectives on Harry Sullivan and Lester's death in Chapter 10 also benefits from Terence's mythologizing. It remained forever photographed on his, that's Harry's, memory. Terence in Chapter 11 drops this line about Harry, Harry had his strong points, but secrecy and subtlety were not among them. Bored in the book, during another incipient Voris rant or speech, Harry is said to interrupt ruthlessly. The dusty death out outline that I talked about earlier is conspicuous in its absence in Chapter 11. As is a lot of Tom Baker and Liz Slade in chemistry, this was only the fourth serial they recorded together in production order, but it's where on TV they began to perfect their act. They finish each other's whistles. Tom tags Liz on the shoulder after she says she's glad to see him. None of that is here, and it's a big loss. Terence is at his best, though, in writing about political machinations. For all the brilliant little nonverbal moments of grace that I've talked about from the TV episode, we get this remarkable bit of Tyrum's thought processes in the final chapter that are not made clear on television. To himself... He thought that Voris and his rocket had come in useful after all. He would see that Voris received full posthumous credit. A martyr was so much more satisfactory than a political rival. The book's final scene takes place on board the TARDIS, whereas on television the TARDIS was a prop, but the TARDIS set was not seen anywhere during the season 12 production block. 
So that means on television, the doctor walks into the TARDIS prop, removes a bunch of ticker, ticker tape from a visible hook, and then brings it out. On television, we get the moment where the travelers pile into the TARDIS, and the doctor says they're going to Loch Ness, followed by a footnote leading us into the previously published novelization of Doctor Who and the Loch Ness Monster, which we've already covered on this podcast. You can, you can hear me talk about it with Cy Hart back in episode 18. And that's the conclusion of Revenge of the Cybermen. It is 128 pages. It is probably not Terrence's best book, although the changes from the TV version are interesting. It cuts out a lot of the most memorable little moments from TV, but it adds more scenes and more dialogue, and as Terrence is always great for doing, it adds additional thought processes into characters and observational humor. This is not a mere transcription of the camera script. Terrence goes to a lot of effort in almost every paragraph to add some funny or sharp bit about what a character is thinking or feeling or doing or why they're doing it. I remain, as is Dave, very fond of Revenge of the Cybermen, which I know puts me in a small minority of Doctor Who fans. It is not the shining example of the Philip Hinchcliffe era. There is much more of that to come. But I think Revenge of the Cybermen does what it does very well. It made a big impression on me when I was 11 years old. And here I am still talking about it in, uh, you know, age 48. And you might not realize this from the length of my episodes, but I really do care about you guys' time. And I hope you've enjoyed the last 90 minutes or so with Dave and myself talking about Revenge of the Cybermen. Next time... I'll be back with a return guest, and we'll be talking about the companion piece to this story, Doctor Who and the Genesis of the Daleks, the novelization that is footnoted in this one, but actually came out later, two months later, in fact, in July 1976. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Doctor Who Literature. My name is Jason. I am your host and editor and producer. Special thanks to my special guest, David Barsky. This podcast is brought to you by Anchor and can also be found on Spotify and Google Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Who Novels, that's DR Who Novels, and you can also find me on the Trap One podcast from time to time. I write about Dr. Who on Twitter using the hashtag Dr. Who Pilgrimage, that's DR Who Pilgrimage. Please drop me a line with your comments, questions, and suggestions. Next time, we'll be discussing another novelization, and we'll again be joined by a very special guest. Thank you for listening, and whatever you do, keep turning the pages.